much. If you would turn with me to a few scriptures I would like to read together with you in the Acts of the Apostles and chapter 7. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said to him, Are these things so? And he, Stephen, said, Brethren and fathers, Abraham, our, our, the, sorry, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And then I want to turn you to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. We will read just those verses together. And I will read them to you. Chapter 12 from verse 1. Now the Lord said unto Avram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto the land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And be thou a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, And him that curseth thee will I curse. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Then if you will turn back to the new covenant, to the the Apostle Paul's Roman letter. Roman letter, and we will read just a few verses in Romans chapter 4 from verse 16. For this cause it is of faith, that it may be according to grace, to the end that the promise may be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, that is the Jews, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made thee, Before him whom he bleed, even God, who giveth life to the dead, and calleth the things that are not as though they were, who in hope believed against hope, to the end that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall thy seed be. And I want to just read in the Psalms. Sorry to give you so many readings this evening, but (laughs) they're all important. The second Psalm. The second Psalm is a prophetic window onto our present situation. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate of vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. Then will he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We have just a word of prayer. Beloved Lord, we want to thank you that we're here in your presence this evening. 
And Lord, when you're present, anything can happen. And Lord, we just commit ourselves to you for this time. We believe you have something on your heart. You want to speak to us. You want to share with us. And our prayer is, Lord, that the anointing which you have so dearly won for us at Calvary may be ours in full portion, both for the speaking of your word and for the hearing of it. Lord, touch our hearts this evening. We've been talking about intercession, and Lord, we pray that in some way you will bring us to an understanding of what your purpose is for Israel and how we can intercede for that people and that land. And we ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to seek by the grace of God alone to give you this evening a bird's eye view of, um, of God's purpose for Israel. Um, now that's quite a tall order, um, especially a bird's eye view. Um, uh, to be able just to see the whole picture and how the Gentiles fit into that picture is part of really coming to a full understanding of God's eternal purpose. There are so few Christians who have any idea as to what God's eternal purpose is. Why did he create this universe? Why did he create this planet? Why did he create Adam and Eve? When they fell, why did he persevere with them? Why didn't he finish them all together and start to go anew with a new Adam and a new Eve? Why did he persevere with them? Why did the Lord Jesus come into the world to save sinners? When he died on the cross, what did he do on the cross in saving both a Gentile and Jew? Tall order, but the Lord is sufficient for this. <laughs> and the anointing is enough for my speaking that you may hear his voice and for our hearing that we hear what he has to say and are obedient to it. When the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, whilst he was in Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia, one of the most extraordinary things in the whole history of humanity took place. According to our Jewish tradition, Abraham's family had a very lucrative business in order of the Chaldees. They were idol makers. Now, there were idols in, for everything and everywhere. On every street corner in Ur of the Chaldees, no mean city, by the way, there were idols. There were idols in temples. There were idols in gardens. There were idols in homes. There were idols for the bedroom. There were idols for the kitchen. Those of you who are Chinese will understand this. Um, everything had an idol somewhere. So the business that um, Abraham's family was in was an incredibly lucrative business. They were selling idols. Now, according to our tradition, Abraham was a salesman a super salesman for the family. So his job was selling idols. And it was at some point, how we do not know, the God of glory appeared to him. That God of glory was no idol. It was the living God with neither beginning nor end. The everlasting God. And he appeared to Abraham. How he appeared, we don't fully know. All we know is this, that when the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, Abraham saw in him the redemption of the world. 
for the first time, he understood that God had a purpose for mankind. And that purpose was going to be fulfilled. He saw in the God of glory, the city of glory. The Hebrew letter tells us in chapter 11 that um, he sought for the city which has in Greek the foundations, whose builder and architect is God. The moment God appeared to Abraham, changed his life and it changed the world something happened at that point which very few Christians have really understood they relegate Abraham to history and to the Jewish people but in actual fact what happened was astounding. It is stunning when you begin to realize exactly what happened. This was the greatest turning point in divine history. Up to that point, God had dealt with individuals, with families, with clans, but he had not dealt with the people. But the moment God saved Abraham, it was a people that was in view, the redeemed of the world. One of my friends has put it this way, and I think it's, he was, must have been inspired to be able to put it this way. He said, when God saved Abraham, he put within him the whole DNA of world redemption. I will repeat it. When God saved Abraham, he put within him the whole DNA of world redemption. That's why the Apostle Paul, the greatest rabbi that ever lived, the Apostle Paul actually says that, um, you see, Abraham was saved by faith not by the law, because he believed what he saw, the God that appeared to him. He believed him. He trusted him. And the scripture says, God accounted it as righteousness. He was justified in the sight of God because of his living faith. And we know the story of how God said that he is in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, but he had no seed. And the interesting thing was he tried to work it, as you know, with Sarah's help, which was a great disaster. <laughs> and we had, as a result, Ishmael. Thank God the Lord can save the seed of Ishmael and is doing so. But the fact of the matter is it was a dreadful mistake. Until Isaac was born. And then, of course, God put dear Abraham to the test and said to him, now sacrifice this son. Now Abraham knew very well that the whole promise of God of world, world redemption was centered in that son. For him to have put his only son to death, <laughs> would have been tantamount to destroying the purpose of God. And that's why, again, the Hebrew letter tells us that he believed that God would work a miracle. And after he had sacrificed his son, he would bring him back to life and restore him to living. So the purpose of God could be fulfilled. It is really interesting to, to read what the Lord said. He said two things. Out of thee shall come a great nation. Now, not by any <coughs> computation can we describe Israel as a great nation. 
by human standards. I mean, whenever I've been to China or had anything to do with the Chinese, they just absolutely can't understand. They believe that Israel has to be hundreds of millions. They can't believe we're only six million people. Especially with their believers, they read the scripture, they say, tiny little nation, six million people in a postage stamp of territory in the Middle East. And God's whole purpose is centered on that people. But the greatness of Israel is centered in the fact that God's light to the nations came through that little nation. And God's salvation for the nations came through that little nation. And God's whole eternal purpose was revealed in and through that little nation. No other nation has such a claim. And that is the greatness of Israel. Her greatness lies in the fact that the Messiah himself was born of her. He was Jewish through and through. Jesus himself said to the woman at Samaria, the well in Samaria, you worship what you don't understand, but we worship the one who's been revealed to us. And then he said, for salvation is of the Jews. We could put it another way, and we could say salvation is Jewish. That great nation became the cradle, the womb of the kingdom of God. Through that small nation, we had the prophets, we had the kings, we had the patriarchs of our faith. It is a terrible shock to some Christian people of Gentile extraction that every single book of the Bible has been written by a Jewish hand. They seem to naturally think that the New Testament is far more superior because these were all Christians and there's a Gentile hand, whereas the Old Covenant is all Jewish hands. It's very suspect. You have to be very careful of the Jews. They exaggerate. They they sort of make things seem better than they really are in order to win a deal. So you've got to be very careful of the Jews, but of course the New Testament is nothing like that. There you've got absolute precision, absolute accuracy. But they altogether forget it's not just the 39 books of the Old Covenant that were written through Jewish uh, hands and by through Jewish minds, but the 26 books and letters of the New Testament, other than the possibility of one gospel and one other writing, were written by Jews. John, Peter, uh, where do you want Paul, James, the writer of the Hebrew letter. Unbelievably, his name was probably Apollos. How anyone called a Jew Apollos, I shall never know. (laughs) One day I'll ask his mother in glory, why did you call him Apollos? But they called him Apollos. He was a very gifted uh, uh, preacher and teacher in the early church. All these are Jews. So it is incredible that through this little nation, God gave us this Bible. The only possibility of a Gentile hand is Luke. As you know, he was a doctor, and a very interesting doctor. And um, his gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, also written by him, may be the only Gentile um, uh, uh, addition to the Bible 
that we have. I say that that is something extraordinary when you think about it. It is no wonder to me that all through history this little nation has been the focal point of war, of conflict, of murder, of hatred, of everything that is darkness. It seems that the whole hierarchy of evil was combined (laughs) to snuff out this little nation, either through their sin or their backsliding, to somehow make a rift between the Almighty and this little nation. It is an incredible story, and it hasn't ended. If we take the history of the Jewish people through all the last 2,000 years, the massacres have never ceased. The conflict has never ceased. The misrepresentation has never ceased. Anti-Semitism is the world's oldest hatred. And it comes from hell. It is Satan himself energizing human beings. What an amazing story It is. And all through these years, God has protected this little nation, even when they fell into sin, even when they took foreign gods. He was with them. When they worshipped idols, what did the Lord do? He exiled them to Babylon, the center of idolatry. In this sense, I believe that God is a homeopath. He believed that a little bit of the same thing would cure them forever. (laughs) And that's what he did. He sent them to Babylon and there they found out that idolatry was to be shunned. When they went back to Israel, no more idols. They were finished with them. But that is just a picture of what God has done through the ages. It's a very sad story that the church became one of the antagonists and the cause of so much anti-Semitism both in its teaching and in its practice. I remember years ago going to the great Jewish uh, seminary in New York and seeing a statue at the entrance. It was a statue of an old thorn bush. And underneath were written in Hebrew, and the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. That is the story of this little but great nation. The incredible thing is that God has brought back this people from the ends of the earth. When everybody could say what they wanted to say, when, for instance, the Catholic Church, not so much now, but in earlier years, actually taught that the Jews were a representation of the devil and that they were the wandering Jew destined to wander until they ended in hell. That was the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church until Pope John the Twenty-Third. He changed all that. He asked forgiveness 
of the Jewish people, which was followed by Pope John Paul and by Pope Benedict. The story doesn't end there because it is only natural for Jews to feel that Hitler was a Christian. He wasn't a Jew. <laughs> In fact, he was a Catholic. And not a good one. <laughs> but he was a Catholic, born a Catholic. In Leonding, in Linz, in Austria. And so many of the other leaders of the Nazi party were Catholics. Many of them also born in Austria. They're very interesting the whole story. When you really view it as you should view it, it becomes very interesting to see how God has protected this extraordinary people. They've gone to the ends of the earth. I could never believe it, but I found Jews everywhere. Um, in China, of all places, in Kaifan. Um, in, in New Zealand, I remember going to speak in a place called Invercargill in the southern Ireland, right at the tip, almost within the Arctic Circle. And a lady came up to me and said, I am the southernmost Jewess in the world. <laughs> she said, I'm the only Jewess in this whole place. I couldn't believe it. I said, isn't it about time you came home? <laughs> yeah, everywhere you go, there are Jews. Far north, far south, far east, far west. And God brought them home. Now, what does the scripture say? It is very interesting. I will read it to you. Um, in the prophecy of Isaiah, it says... Let me find it for you so I can quick, quickly repeat it. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 26. And I will lift up an ensign to the nations from afar and will hiss for them, that is the Jewish people, from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed, swiftly. This ensign, you, I'm not sure you can understand that being a republic. But an ensign is a standard. Normally, wherever the king is, where he's in residence, the standard flies above the building. When he's in a car, it flies on top of the car, not just the bonnet. I don't, you don't call it the bonnet, do you? You call it a hood, I think. But... Um, uh, you always know where the king or queen is because the standard's there. And the, what the Lord is saying is this. I will lift up a standard. This is where the king is. They may be unsaved. They may be far, far away from salvation. But this bringing back of them from the ends of the earth is a sign. Look again in, in Isaiah and, and chapter 11. Let me read it again. It's not as if it just comes once, but uh, here it is again. Uh, verse 12, listen. And he will set up an ensign for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Couldn't be clearer. Here is a standard. Doesn't matter what people say. Some theologians tell us all this is what I'm saying is rubbish. Absolute nonsense. They say God has finished with the Jewish people. The whole thing is now to do with the church. We call it replacement theology. But um, I've searched to find this replacement theology for years. I can't find it. The other thing I find very interesting, now they're calling it fulfillment theology. So it sounds a little nicer. Fulfillment theology. Apparently God's purpose has been fulfilled in the Gentiles, not the Jews. But I think they're making a huge mistake. 
God doesn't play games. He's not just joking. God's bringing these people back for a reason. One of the supreme reasons is that it should be a testimony to the nations, to the absolute authority of God's word and the absolute relevance of God's word that a nation scattered to the ends of the earth found in every tribe and people and ethnic group and tongue throughout the whole world should be brought back to uh, the very homeland from which they were exiled. Isn't that amazing? And when did it happen? I'm told by some who hate us that it's Jewish bankers. Uh, And a kind of conspiracy of Jews like the elders of Zion. Zion. You know, they, they conspired this. But it didn't happen like when the Jewish people were the most broken and the most broken-hearted and the most hopeless, it happened. The Holocaust saw a minimum of six million people dying simply because they were Jews. It was industrialized death. They shipped them from every country in Europe, from the Scandinavian countries to France, They shipped them even from North Africa to places where they would be gassed and incinerated. It is incredible. And when, by the way, Simon Wiesenthal, who of course is now gone, but he was a dear man, and he spent his life tracking down Nazi leaders bringing them to justice. But he said that he believed that the minimum of uh, those who died was 8 million, at least 8 million, because the German army, the Nazis, had Einsatzgruppe that went in with the front line and they would come to any hamlet or town that had a Jewish population, round up the Jews, make them dig great ditches, and machine-gunned them to death. So we know there were six million died in the actual camps. But beyond that, there were a whole number of others who were just buried in other places, all over Eastern Europe and Russia. It's a a dreadful story. But when the Jewish people were the most hopeless and the most broken-hearted, the miracle happened. Not at the zenith of their power, not at a climax of great jubilation, but at the point of their greatest weakness. And there was no other alternative for them. When they went back to their homes in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in Hungary, They were murdered. They had survived the Holocaust. Take Shamir's father. Why did Shamir become the stern leader that he was in Israel when he became prime minister? Because his father went back to their family home in Poland to be murdered by the neighbors. They had survived the Holocaust only to be murdered by the Gentiles. So there was no alternative but Israel. Now it's a very interesting story because um, there were some two million little children that survived the Holocaust. Millions also died, but two million survived the, the Holocaust. And nobody knew what to do because they had no father and no mother, and many of them no relatives. They shipped back those children by 
vessels that could hardly be called seaworthy back to the homeland. So the story of Israel is truly a story of greatness. The fact that God himself says this is a standard, it tells you where the king is. This is a banner which tells you where the victory is with the king where the headquarters of the kingdom is it is the king I find that marvellous so for those with eyes to see this little nation that lives continuously in conflict and war and hatred and misrepresentation is still there today. It started in 1948. Since then, we've had ten wars, four of which should have been the annihilation of Israel. But in every one of those wars, Israel has triumphed by the grace of God. And Israel today is still Israel. Now, if you followed me so far, let me take you one step further. If I'm not boring you. The Lord didn't just say a great nation shall come out of you. He said to Abraham, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In other words, when the God of glory appeared to Abraham, it was a twofold covenant. One was to do with a great nation that would come out of him, that would become the vessel for the light of God and the salvation of God and the coming of the Messiah of God and the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. But the other pact was to do with the Gentiles. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All the ethnic groups will come into the salvation of God through this great nation and through the Messiah that would come through them. Well, I don't have to tell you you're a good Americans and Christians. You know very well that you have sent missionaries to the end of the earth. You have been right in the forefront of the gospel battle. Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the nations for a testimony, and then shall the end come. Now, I must be careful of myself, because I shall talk for too long. Um, but uh, here is something I think that is mind-blowing. Psalm 2 is a little window on the world we live in. These kings and rulers, these nations are in agitation and foment. And what is it over? It is over the Lord and his Messiah. They say, we will not have them to rule over us. We will break their bonds. We will throw away their cords. In other words, the word of God is bondage. The law of God accords chains that bind people. Have you heard that? Have you heard it? It's all part of the new educational system that so much of Christianity that has been taught in schools and in education is a bondage. We should be allowed to have same-sex marriage. We should be allowed to have uh, uh, gay rights and so on because, I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's all bondage. This is this old, old, dreadful old Bible. It's a bondage. Away with it. Let's get rid of it. 
And then the Lord says, he that sitteth in the heavens will laugh. He will have them in derision. And then he says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's exactly where Jesus is tonight. He's in the holy hill of Zion. He is at the right hand of God. Do you remember that great psalm, the most quoted of all psalms in the New Testament is the 110th Psalm. And it says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at thy right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your your feet. Let the rod of your strength go forth from Zion. Rule thou in the midst of your enemies. No wonder this was quoted by the early church. Again and again and again. That's why it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Where is he tonight? At the right hand of God. What is it called? Zion. What what is he doing? He's reigning. Let the rod of your strength, the scepter of your strength, that's something to do with kingship. Let Let the rule go forth from Zion, from the right hand of God. So it is Now, you people who got upset about what I've said about intercession. (laughs) All you've got to do, instead of quibbling about it, is ask the Lord what he's saying. He's at the right hand of God. What's wrong? Why why, why say, I won't pray, I won't pray. That brother said something, that upset me. I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to take part in intercession. I'm not in intercession. Well, maybe you're not. Maybe you're not an intercessor, but there's no reason why you shouldn't become one. All intercessors have an L plate on their, bo- on their bottom, pinned on their behind. So if you, instead of calling it intercession times, call it intercession learners. We're all learning something about intercession, but don't you think this is tremendous? When you think about, where is the Lord Jesus? He's head. We're not headless. It's not as if somehow or other he chucked us out into this world to do the best that we can possibly do with all the evil that's in it and all the hierarchy of evil that is against us. He just said, do your best. You're on your own. He's at the throne. And furthermore, Satan can't touch him. Thank the Lord for that. Every time Satan touches me, I thank the Lord he can't touch the Lord Jesus. He can't dethrone him. He cannot waylay him. He cannot paralyze him. He cannot lay siege to him. He can do nothing of the kind. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And that means that the purpose of God for the church will be fulfilled. And the purpose of God for the Jewish people will be fulfilled. So I think I have to draw draw this a little to a close. But the, the, the marvelous thing is that he said, In thee, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth, the ethnic groups, shall be blessed. You know there are people everywhere. Mongols, Chinese. New Zealanders, Australians of all things, speaking terrible English, um, all saved by an America that has murdered the English language, saved by the grace of God, reading the Bible in English. I mean, it's marvellous, and that's very often in Shakespearean English as well. Um, But anyway, that's by the way. When I first came to the United States, I saw a caption on the New York Times, right on the front page. English is the language which divides the United States from the United Kingdom. (laughs) (laughs) But they absolutely do, because you have phrases we use. If I say someone is homely, you are horrified. That means something quite different, I understand, in American English. You, know, you think I'm saying someone's very ugly. 
And when we say someone is homely, we mean they're really wonderful wives or wonderful mothers. They care for the home beautifully and so on. You know, something quite different. And I could tell you a whole number of other terms that I will not. Where we completely differ in our understanding of the English. But isn't it amazing that God has not left himself without a witness? Here he has brought these people back from the ends of the earth, exactly fulfilling prophecies thousands of years old. Even Moses prophesied about the coming back of the Jewish people from exile. That's how old these prophecies are. And they have been completely fulfilled. Now, if that is the case, do you believe that God is going to leave this people? No, it means that whatever comes against Israel from Iran or from the Muslim Brotherhood that now surround us in nearly every nation, the Lord will take full responsibility for it. <clears throat> I keep on saying I will finish, but I... I there's such a lot to say about <laughs> this matter. With the, with the, the problem, the wonderful thing about Abraham was God put in him the DNA of world redemption. Not only from the Gentiles, but from the Jews. So if you read your Bible carefully, you will discover that God has clearly said that the Jewish people will in the end be saved. Jesus said it when he said, you shall not see my face until you shall say, blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. That word, Baruch Hababa Shematonami, is a way we say welcome. So he said, when you say welcome, you'll see me. So that's going to happen. It's part of the whole plan of God. Now, you Gentiles should be really happy that he's saving you. I mean, the marvelous thing is he's holding back on the Jewish salvation while he saves you. Oh, you say, no, no, you're going a bit too far now. I can't go along with you on this one. So just wait. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Um i better read it because my, I'm getting old now. My memory's not good. <laughs> but I will read to you exactly what the Apostle Paul says in the very well-known passage in Romans chapter 11. For I would not, brothers, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part hath befallen Israel. Some modern versions put a partial petrification has taken place in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, not the full, um, not the, uh, the times of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles, the full number of the Gentiles becoming. So God is holding back in order to save Gentiles everywhere, in all the nations of the earth, in all the families of the earth. But when that time comes that the full number is in, he won't be a legalist, he won't wait till the very last person is saved. But when it's coming near to the completion of this tremendous purpose of God to save the Gentiles, he will turn back to the Jewish people and save them. And when that happens, it will be incredible. The Holy Spirit will fall upon synagogues, upon yeshivot, Jewish Bible schools, and suddenly eyes will open as if they, have, they are seeing something they've never seen before. Then in that moment, the key to Jewish history will be given to the Jewish people. They will understand the whole history of the Jewish people, the hatred of them, the misrepresentation of them, the persecution of them, and so much more. What will it mean? 
The apostle says, these natural branches been brought back into their own olive tree. Now this, their own olive tree, is the olive tree by the grace of God you're in. You're a wild olive branch, as I've always said, some of you more wild than others. But you have, by the grace of God, been engrafted into the good olive tree. This is altogether... uh, This isn't... uh, uh, Good olive branches being put into a wild olive uh, uh, stock. This is the opposite. Wild olive branches being engrafted into a good stock and the believe it or believe it not, bearing fruit. That's amazing. But when these natural branches come back into their own olive tree, what does the apostle say? He says this, he says, it will be life from the dead. It will go through the whole redeemed body of the Lord Jesus with life and resurrection power for the last phase of world history, however long that may last. Isn't this something tremendous? I I think that Who would have believed that dear Abraham, God put into him the whole DNA of world redemption so that we call him our father. Now, I call him my father, forefather, because I'm Jewish. But you can call him your forefather just as much as me. He's your father. If you've got that same living faith he had, you've been accounted justified. And if you're justified, who is he that condemns? Who shall condemn the elect of God? It's impossible. It's it's wonderful. Well, I want to just say this. We are now in the last phase. We haven't seen the the actual fullness of the Gentiles come in. So we're right there. So we shouldn't give up on gospel work. It's essential. But we're very near to it. And one of the reasons is when you read the prophecy of Zechariah and he tells us here is a special burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And then he says this. He says I will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling to all the peoples round about in the siege against Jerusalem. So there is a siege coming. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that there will be armies around us, or more it could. It also means they will do to us what they did to South Africa. They won't allow airlines to fly in or fly out. They won't allow postal service to be from other countries to them or from them. They won't allow them to buy things or sell things. And they will literally condemn them to death. Strangle them. It's the siege against Jerusalem. Read it. It's all in Zechariah 12. Zechariah's prophecy, certainly the last part of it, is more relevant than tomorrow morning's newspaper. It tells us exactly what's going to happen. So when I hear about the United Nations and there are some 130 nations that are now recognized a sovereign Palestinian state, when they talk about this cement the powers, about genocide, I've never heard any such nonsense in my life. I mean, I live in Israel. Not as if the Jews around us believe in murdering the Palestinians. Absolutely ridiculous. But here she's talking in the United Nations, I would pray that the Lord would get rid of her. Altogether, I think she'll do a lot of damage uh, in the United Nations, talking like that, as if we are indulging in genocide. It's ridiculous. Why do we have to check everybody? Because they bring bombs to us and blow up buses and schools and hospitals, and I don't know what else. 
Why do we have a security fence? Because we had to stop these people coming across and doing all, all these things. Anyway, <laughs> to come back to what I'm trying to say, it's very simple. I think we're very near the end. And you know what the word says? It says about the siege against Jerusalem that the Lord will help the generals. The word in Hebrew is aluf, alufe, which means the generals. And they, when they come, they will be like a torch of fire in a, in a, in a, a wheat field. It will just roar with fire all around. <laughs> and then it says, and I will defend Jerusalem, and I will defend Judah, and all the rest of it. It's and then listen to this. In that day, the spirit of grace and supplication will be poured upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? How did you get saved when the spirit of God opened your eyes to Jesus? That's how you got saved. So it's exactly the same way that Jews are going to be saved. Only the Lord has all through these years held back the salvation of the Jews except in a remnant because he's trying to bring you lot into the kingdom. <laughs> but once we're near to its completion, he will turn back to the Jewish people. And then there will be salvation in every part of Israel. We see some very hopeful signs. For instance, there was a very famous rabbi called Kaduri. He survived the Holocaust. He was nearly worshipped like a guru because he was such a godly man, such a good man. When he died, millions literally turned out for his funeral and the whole of Jerusalem was disrupted. Traffic and everything. But before he died, a year before he died, he told his closest um, um, friends and leaders of the yeshivot that he led, his, his disciples, he said to them, the, the Lord Messiah appeared to me in a dream vision and told me his name. I have written it down and I've sealed it in an envelope. It is not to be opened until one year after my death. One year after his death, they opened the sealed envelope. And it just said exactly that. The, the King Messiah appeared to me in a night vision dream. And he said to me, my name is Yehoshua. So that's gone right the way through all those yeshivot, ultra-Orthodox. Then again, the, Jew, the Jewish Chronicle has, a month or two ago, um, reviewed a book by one of the leading Talmudic scholars in the Jewish world. If I remember rightly, it is entitled The Divine Messiah. And in it he says, most Jews look upon the idea that there was a divine Messiah, that he was God in the flesh, as non-kosher, you know, twiff, rubbish, trash. But he said, in actual fact, the reading and study of Daniel led the Jews in the time of Jesus to believe that there was a, the Messiah would be divine. <coughs> because you remember the ancient of days? And then there was brought to him the Son of Man. And he said to the Son of Man, to you will I give all the kingdoms of the earth. Exactly what Psalm 2 said. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the outermost parts of the earth. 
for your possession. So he said, it's not so stupid as some people think. Maybe they were wrong. But it's not so stupid. I wonder whether that book may be a turning point in the whole understanding of Jesus. We shall see. So keep your eyes open and your ears pinned back. We shall see. It will happen. Whether it's through that book or something else, it will happen. More surely than I stand here, it will happen. One of these days, the Holy Spirit will fall on Jewish Bible schools, Jewish synagogues. People will be knocked out all over the place and they won't be able to recover quickly. They will get up and in a daze and say, Jesus, like I knew one rabbi, wonderful man, head of a number of yeshivot, who came secretly to me. He, he knew a friend who knew me and he asked him to phone me and he said, I mustn't stand on your front door for a moment. When I ring the bell at such and such a time on a Tuesday evening, open it. And he said, I don't want anyone else to be in the house. Please see that nobody is. And I said to this friend, I can't do that because these boys like Michael, whatever people say about his fashion, um, uh, <laughs> are sworn to secrecy so that if they hear people tell me things in confidence or so on, they're told they don't go sharing this around with others. So I said that. So then this dear rabbi said, okay, I will trust you. He told this, I will trust him. Exactly at the right time, pressed the bell, and the, one of our boys went and opened the door. I stood right near the door, and in walked a man with a great hat with fur all round it, silk pantaloons tied at the knees, silk stockings. He was absolutely habadnik. I gawked. I looked at him. I took one look at his face, and I knew he was saved. I said to him, you don't have to tell me that you know the Lord Jesus. He said, of course, I do. So he came in, and because we have a kosher home, he said, I can drink and eat with you, which we did. And then after a while, I said to him, don't Christians say to you, why are you dressed like that? Shouldn't you let that all go? And he said, well, what shall I do? Shall I become a Baptist or a Pentecostal or an Episcopalian or a Methodist or what shall I do? He said, no, he said, there were one or two of us in Mersorim that feel like this. We've found the Lord. And he said, we believe we should remain where we are until the day comes that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the Jewish people. Then we'll be there ready to help. These are things that are happening in Israel. I mean, it's, uh, it's not as if nothing is happening. Things are happening. And I think, and then I must I keep on saying I will finish. Um, but you see, the most amazing thing of all is what the Apostle Paul goes on to say. He says, I would not brothers have you ignorant of this mystery. It is a mystery. How can the Lord use an unsaved nation? How can he be in the midst of an unsaved nation? How can his purpose still be centered in them? And they're unsaved. It's a mystery. Then he goes on. A partial petrification has taken place in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come, and so all Israel shall be saved. Not meaning that every Jew will be saved simply because he's Jewish, but everyone who's in the natural olive tree, Gentile or Jewish, will be saved. That is the DNA of Abraham. Isn't that incredible? And when you think about it, you see, he goes on and says, even as it is written, now this is a problem, because we have searched everywhere to find where it's written. He says, even as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, 
and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Well, I mean, normally we're told this is Isaiah, um, I think it's 59 and uh, verse 19, and it was the last verse in one chapter in Isaiah, where it says, And a redeemer shall come to Zion, and shall turn away ungodliness, uh, and to those who turn away from ungodliness in Jacob. But he quotes this from... How did he quote it? Because it's not what the Hebrew says. So I thought it must be the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. So I've looked it up in all the Greek verses. I can't find it. So I've now come to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit gave a little bit of dimension to Paul. And, um, <laughs> and he sort of did it. But I think the Lord was in it. Because the Lord said, and a deliverer shall come out of Zion. Not to Zion, but out of Zion. That's where he is. It's Jesus. And he shall turn away, and only God knows the ungodliness in Israel. And he shall turn away ungodliness in Jacob. It, isn't that amazing? Well, it's going to be fulfilled. And I hope you'll all be here. And I also, I know I'm in 82, going on to 83, by Chinese reckoning, I'm 84. <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, you know, I don't know. Will will I be here? But if I'm not here, I shall see it from another vantage point. (laughs) It will happen more surely than I stand here. And we're very near to it. So pray on. And pray for the United States. For her attitude and relationship to Israel is very much a key to the judgments that are falling upon the United States and the other nations. May the Lord help you.